Well, uh, fun fact, um, before uh, I got ordained, I did a master's degree in commercial real estate because my original plan was to go and be a chartered surveyor and God had other ideas. I ended up doing a very, very uh, difficult degree, basically for absolutely no reason. Um, But it was a very interesting course and um, part of it was taught by somebody named Professor Malcolm Hollis, who um, had the distinction of being the world's foremost authority on the subject of building pathology. In other words, what goes wrong when buildings collapse. And some of the examples that he gave were quite dramatic because he was trying to teach us what it was which makes a good building. What is it which is going to enable a building to withstand the inevitable forces and the pressures uh, which the building is going to face through the course of its lifetime? And uh, some of the examples of what goes wrong are quite dramatic. Here, I've got a picture here which is going to hopefully come up on the screen of this is the Sampoon uh, department store in Seoul in South Korea, which on the 29th of June 1995 collapsed spectacularly. Isn't that terrifying? Guess why? Guess why it came down? It, um, it wasn't just that it had bad foundations. It wasn't just that it was badly built. It was because, actually, the site which it was built on before it was built there, it was a landfill site. And actually, the, uh, the, the landfill hadn't been properly compacted in order to be able to take the weight of this great structure which was going on top of it. So when the pressure came, and the day that the building collapsed, actually it was abnormally full, tragically. And so there was more pressure on there than normal. And uh, when the pressure came, it all went wrong because literally it was built on rubbish. Well, as I mentioned, we're studying this um, letter to the Romans this summer. It's the most explosive and influential letter which has ever been posted. And we started off last week, and we can click off that picture now if you like. Thank you so much. Um, uh, We started last week by looking at um, at Paul's main theme, which he introduces in in this letter. And it's the theme which is just up here behind me, the theme of justification by faith like a symphony that keeps on coming back to uh, the same melody that it expands upon and and elaborates on and does variations of. And and Paul returns to this theme of justification by faith over and over again throughout this letter. And this is the idea that when we stand before the judge, we won't be judged on our own merits. We won't be judged according to our own performance. Because if we were, well, we'd have to say we're probably all going to come up short. Uh, In Romans, it tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if God's love towards us was performance-based, none of us would be able to earn it. But the amazing news is that actually God has given us what we couldn't earn by our own hard work freely to receive as a gift of grace. Jesus actually, at the cross, took all of our guilt and our shame and our wrongdoing. They were transferred onto him and his perfect obedience, perfect righteousness was given freely to us. And so the true test of whether we've really got our heads around this extraordinary truth of justification by faith is that when we ask the question this morning, what does God think of us? How does God think of me this morning? And if I go, do you know, I think he's probably a bit disappointed. Well, that's probably because I'm trying to approach him based on my own hard work and falling short. But if I really get that actually... My righteousness is a gift from God to be received by faith, that I'm justified by him, sheerly by grace. Then how does God see me this morning? Perfect, perfect. Because when he looks at me, 
He doesn't see all my guilt and my sin and my shame. He sees Christ's perfect righteousness. He sees his son, and that is justification by faith. It's the most amazing revolutionary truth that separates Christianity from absolutely other, every other way of understanding the world, every other religion, every philosophy, every other faith. Well, now, so Paul spent three or four chapters explaining that. When we get to chapter five that we've just read, Paul is now beginning to come to some of the consequences, some of the benefits that result from knowing that our standing before God is by faith. Look at verse one. He says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, as we saw last chapter, therefore, all these benefits follow. And so now Paul begins to explain the difference that it makes, knowing that we've been justified by faith when suffering comes, when the pressure literally increases. Because look at verse 3, that word suffering comes twice, doesn't it? And the word there in verse 3 for sufferings literally means pressures. Because in some ways, people are like buildings. In fact, Jesus told a pretty famous story about two different ways you can build your life, either like a wise person or like a, a foolish person. And one guy built on a bad foundation, and when the wind and the rain and the pressure came, like the Sampoong department store, it all went wrong. But there's another guy who built on a solid foundation, and when the pressure came, this is teaching us that not only did the building stay up, Romans 5 tells us that not only did it withstand that pressure, actually there was good benefit and blessing that came from that pressure. Have a look at verse 5. Sorry, verse 4. No, verse 3, sorry. Um, suffering, what happens? What can happen? It says suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. What this is saying is that pressure isn't always bad. And we know that actually when you get the right conditions and under the right circumstances, when you get extreme pressure, that's when diamonds are formed. And here's a diamond worth more than any other hope that can be formed through suffering. Now, I know that the subject of suffering is a, it, that's difficult. And so, in lots of ways, I'm incredibly hesitant to talk about suffering this morning because I know the suffering because it's been shared with me of many in this room. I know that the difficult circumstances which people are going through. And I know that there will be lots that I don't know about. People suffering all manner of pressures illness and bereavement and financial insecurity and relationship breakdown and and on and on and on and on and on. And so I tread carefully this morning when wanting to talk about suffering. I certainly haven't got anything clever to add. I'm not going to come up with anything original. Who am I? I don't know about suffering. I haven't got anything to say. But our goal this morning is not to hear my clever thoughts, but to to hear what this says. Because what does Paul... We're we're trying to find out what does Paul say to the Romans, and not just what did Paul say to the Romans, but what does God say to us? Because as we've just said, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if this is really a word from God to us about suffering, then we should all of us, I think, want to listen in, because I think Paul here gives us a revolutionary approach to suffering, which can make all the difference between collapse and diamonds. It's a truly Christian approach to suffering, which is neither stoicism on one hand... You know, in verse 3, Paul doesn't say we glory despite our sufferings. He doesn't say just grit your teeth, you know, grin and bear it, stiff up a lip, keep calm, carry on, pretend it doesn't exist, bottle it all away, you know, and keep going in spite of suffering. That doesn't work. We all know that that doesn't work. Stoicism on the one hand. 
There's not masochism on the other. Paul doesn't say in verse 3 that we're glorying because of our sufferings. He's not saying that in some weird kind of let's love the pain sort of way. He's saying we're glorying in our sufferings, that even when sufferings happen, that we can rejoice. So, three questions for us. Where is Paul telling the Romans to stand to build the foundations? Two, what difference does it make if we'll stand there? And three, how can we stand there too? Where is Paul telling the Romans to stand? What difference does it make having the foundations there? And three, how can we stand there too? Where is he saying to stand? What is the rock on which the foundations can be built that will withstand suffering? Well, look at verse 2. He says, through Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. In which we stand. That's his, his feet are firmly planted in the grace of God. I wonder where our feet are standing this morning. Many people are building their lives. You know, what's our lives built upon? We've all got to build our house on something. Many people build their lives on financial security or on special relationships, friends and family and maybe good health or maybe, I don't know, there's some success that we've had that we are building our identity upon. All of which are good things. But actually, what happens when the forces come down if our foundations are built on, say, financial security? Well, what happens when market forces conspire to erode our investments that mean that we don't have financial security? Or what happens when those relationships are, when they break down or maybe they're taken away from us? Actually, for Job, if you read the book of Job, all of those things were taken away. Anything which he could have stood on, which looked like a good foundation, was removed. And Paul is saying, we need something here which won't collapse under pressure. We need the grace of God. That's where he's saying to stand. How do we know that? How can we this morning go, actually, I want that underneath my feet. I want to know the love of God and the grace of God that's going to be firm and secure when suffering comes. Well, he's, through these verses, he says that we can just know it objectively. Actually, how do I know God loves me? I don't know how you'd answer the question. If somebody said, how do you know God loves me? We can know this morning, not just because of how we feel, whether we feel love this morning, but we can know objectively because of certain facts which have taken place in history. Have a look at verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And it's extraordinary that Jesus died. He says in verse 7, you know, people don't normally die for each other. Maybe they die for a good person. But, verse 8, one of the best verses in the Bible, how does God demonstrate his love for us? God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died us. That's amazing. Because if we're sitting here going this morning, oh, how do I know God loves me? I might not feel it. I might not feel peace with God. But actually when Paul says in verse 1 that because we've been justified through faith, we've got peace with God, he's not talking about a state of mind because my mind changes and my feelings go up and down. He's not talking about a state of mind, he's talking about a state of affairs. Our situation before God has fundamentally changed. We were enemies of God because of our sin. But now, because of what's happening here, Jesus has taken our sin away, he's dealt with it all, and now we can stand before the judge with peace. And he looks upon us favourably. We can know, because of what's happened in history, that God loves us. I was listening to somebody this week, 
And they said, why are they a Christian? And this person was a historian, a professional historian in a university. They'd looked at the evidence and they'd examined the gospel records which tell about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they said, I'm a Christian because I'm a historian. That's so interesting, isn't it? If, we, if you're here this morning thinking, well, why am I a Christian? How do I know God loves me? Not because of how I feel, but because of what's happened. It's an objective way of knowing that God loves us. But not only that, there's a subjective way as well, internally of knowing God's love, because verse 5 also says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Have you had that experience this morning? Do you know the reality of the love of God poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit? The love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, as the old version puts it. That's the place to stand, Paul's saying, where nothing can chip away at it. Nothing can take that away. No power of hell, no scheme of man, as we sometimes sing, or as Paul's going to say, go on to say at the end of Romans 8, words that are often read at funerals. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor present, nor future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are we standing there? That's the place where Paul says, if we're going to be able to withstand suffering and produce diamonds instead of collapse, we need to have our feet firmly planted in his grace. Well, what difference does it make? Look at the chain reaction which is produced when we stand there. Look at verse 3. Suffering produces perseverance, which is kind of obvious, I suppose, isn't it? How do you get perseverance unless there's something to go through? Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. That's a diamond. To have hope, nothing could be more precious, and that can't be taken away from us. And what Paul is saying, I think, nobody would wish suffering to happen on anybody. But haven't you observed that sometimes the most extraordinary Christian saints, I don't know when you, who you think of when you think of who's the most kind of like amazing saint that you know. I bet we all know somebody like that who just exhibits the love of God, who's just the fruit of the Holy Spirit is manifest in their life. There's people of joy and love and peace and patience and faithfulness and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Isn't it, did they get that character by accident? Isn't it the case that very often people who have that character, that godly character, it's been forged through difficult times? I think of John and Chris Lefroy. And I don't know whether you know John and Chris. If you don't, they were members of our congregation here until quite recently. Um, and I feel like I can mention them because John is now with the Lord and Chris has moved away. So I can say this without fear of embarrassing them. I, I think anybody of us who know John and Chris would say they were some of the most extraordinary. They exhibited the, the godly Christian character more than most people we know. But they went through such terrible tragedy in their life. Nobody would wish what they went through on anybody. But how come the tragedies that they went through didn't crush them when they would have crushed most people? How come it seemed to, the, the, that difficult time they went through seemed to refine in them Christian character and only seemed to strengthen the hope which they had? I think it's because when the pressure came, all it did was drive them deeper into the rock that they were standing on. It only made their hope more precious. I think John and Chris gloried 
in their sufferings. They didn't just glory despite their sufferings, just we're going to pretend that it didn't happen. They didn't glory because of their sufferings. They gloried in them and through them. And that's the difference it makes when we know that we're justified by faith. That's the foundation to build on in order for a diamond to be formed when pressure comes. What's the alternative? The alternative is that we actually believe that God's love is dependent on our performance. Imagine that. Imagine that when I stand before the judge, if I'm going to be based according to my own good deeds, well, what's going to happen when suffering comes? If I think that I relate to God based on how well I've done, well, anytime good things happen in my life, what am I going to think? I'm going to feel like I've earned them. And I'm going to become proud, like a Pharisee. And anytime it goes wrong, I'm going to assume that God has withdrawn his blessing from me because I must have failed in some way. If my, if my knowledge of the love of God is performance-related, is this making sense? I'm not, it, makes sense to, it makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense to you. If, if, if I'm standing before God and hoping that his love for me is based on my good works, when suffering comes, I'll go, hang on a minute, why has this happened? Because what's the first question that gets asked when suffering happens? We go, why? If it's justification by works, then I must have earned it. It must be my fault. I must have done something to deserve this. God must have removed his blessings from me because I've sinned in some way. That's the most obvious assumption to make. That's what Job's friends thought. You know, when Job, if you read through the book of Job, what do his friends all do? When the suffering comes, Job's friends go, you must have done something to deserve this. And that's an awful thing to think, isn't it? I met someone the other day, and I said, uh, literally this week, and I said, oh, are you a Christian? He said, no, I, I used to be a Christian. I used to go to church. I used to believe in God. But then, um, tragically, both his parents died when he was in his 20s. And now he doesn't believe in God because he said, word for word, he said this. He said, if God loved me, he wouldn't have allowed that to happen. On that understanding, whether things go well or not is based on my performance. That's not how it works. We don't know why suffering happens. Nobody's got any easy answers to the question of suffering. The oldest book in the Bible was written to address the subject of the question of suffering, and there's no easy answers. Read the book of Job, 42 chapters, he never gets the answer at the end. Why did I have to go through all of that? We don't know. And if we're suffering this morning, we can't just go, oh, here's the, here's the reason why. One day maybe we'll find out, and it'll be like a great tapestry that we've only been able to see the back of. And we go, hang on a minute, this doesn't look right. I'm staring at the back of this tapestry and there's a poking out bit of string there and there's a knot over there and this bit doesn't seem to go anywhere and it all looks a mess. And one day the tapestry is going to be flipped around and it'll all go, ah. And all the while God has been weaving something. But we don't know that yet. We don't know. We, we're, we're just here. We haven't got a clue what's going on. The book of Job doesn't tell us why suffering happens. What it tells us is how to go through suffering in such a way that doesn't produce collapse but that when we're tested we'll come forth as gold. Well, how can we stand there? Doesn't that sound appealing? I think it does. I haven't been through anything I don't think in my life which has pressures like I know some of us here have faced. But I want, I want this to be true for me because it, as you read it, doesn't it sound counterintuitive, verse 3, that sufferings could produce perseverance and perseverance character and character hope? How can we get that as the foundation under our feet? How can we be planted so firmly, not in the shifting sands of my own circumstances, but on the grace and the love of God so that when suffering comes, it will only drive me deeper into the rock of ages. The answer is, the great theme of this letter, by faith, just by faith.
Verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access, again, by faith, he wants to underline, into this grace in which we now stand. He says we, the access we have into this place where our, by our sufferings could be transformed is purely by faith. Have you ever had access to somewhere you shouldn't have been able to get to in your own, by yourself? You know, and you've known someone who's been able to get you in. I, mean, I think of a former colleague of mine who went to work for an MP, and we went to the Houses of Parliament. And you can go and visit the Houses of Parliament, but you've got to get in the queue, you've got to go through all the security. And we rocked up there, and she just was stood behind the thing, and she said, oh, come with me, and we just went past everybody, went past all the security, and we got to go around all the Houses of Parliament, all through all the places where you don't normally get to go, if I'd have tried to get in there all by myself, there's no way they would have let me in. But we, had, we gained access because she got us in. And that's what Paul is saying here. That because of what Jesus has done for us, we can have access into a place of grace that means that his love is under our feet that will transform our suffering. I think we should pray in a moment that we would be able to receive that gift, which is free for any of us to receive this morning. We don't have to earn it. It's free. And somebody whose suffering produced that perseverance and whose perseverance produced character and whose character produced hope was Fanny J. Crosby, whose hymn we're going to sing in a minute. She wrote many, many hymns, including we're going to sing um, To God Be the Glory, Great Things He Has Done. It was written by Fanny J. Crosby. She wrote more than 9,000 hymns. She wrote so many hymns, she had to start using pseudonyms so that all the hymn books didn't just get filled up with, with her name. She was an amazing lady. She volunteered with the homeless. She established outreach and missions in New York City. She risked her life to tend to the bedsides of the sick and the dying during massive cholera outbreaks. And her ministry continued long after she was dead. She had the honor of being the first woman to address the United States Congress. And she was also invited to dine at the White House more than once. And Fanny Crosby believed that the diamonds that her life was so full of were precisely the result of the suffering that she'd experienced. When she was only six weeks old, she was taken to the physician with an eye infection, which was mistreated and resulted in her total blindness. So she was basically blind from birth. Her father died the same year she was born. She was raised by her 21-year-old single mother, whose name was Mercy, and her grandmother. And Mercy taught her about the mercy and the grace of God. And later in life, Fanny Crosby said this, she seemed, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life, and so I thank him for the dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered to me tomorrow, I wouldn't accept it. When I get to heaven, she said, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Saviour. That's hope. Doesn't that change the way that we're going to sing those words in a moment? Great things he has taught us, great things he has done, great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. The purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our rapture, when Jesus we see. She couldn't see anything. And yet she had hope. Let's pray that we would have it as well, shall we? Let's pray.